Code white white intake. Code white white intake. Code white white intake. Code white white intake. everyone welcome back for another episode of assault precautions we are uh, back this weekend we're going to talk on the subject that we kind of hinted at last week aces um and we've actually got a lot of fun things that we're going to roll out and some good information for you guys wanted to take one minute for just to um congratulate the st louis cardinals on winning the election congratulations all right they they did a good job <laughs> second year in a row yeah, Dynasty. <laughs> Dynasty. My name is Jody, and I'm a nurse. Um, my name is Isaac, and I'm a tech. And my name is Leah. I'm a therapist and social worker. She's our special guest this week. I love her. Feels special already. Oh, yeah. She was like, special before she got here. Shucks, guys. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Thanks. So what we're going to chat about uh, this week is uh, something called the, the, the ACES test it's uh it's the ace being the, an acronym it's the uh, adverse childhood experiences study and it was uh it actually began in an obesity clinic and their sample size was around 17,000 and uh it wasn't just another one of those and forgive me for sounding jaded another one of those uh lower african american and hispanic population tests this was a, a upper middle class um both parents still together so like a, a sample size that you don't usually see in these kind of studies. Uh, and w- what year was it done, Jody? 1998. 1998? That's yeah. when the dynasty for the Cardinals began. Began in 98. And here yeah. we are, still in. Yeah. Yeah, 300 years later. I think they, uh, what was it, the Milwaukee Canucks that year? <laughs> that I, I don't remember. They destroyed them. Yeah, you don't remember who lost. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. They're gone. Yeah, so the study was started in 1998. Uh, Kaiser Permanente and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control started looking at this sample group because there was some interesting information coming out and patterns that they were seeing in, in some comorbidities. Um, and it, the same things are killing everyone all the, all the time, you know, heart disease, cancer. Tomahawks. Tomahawks, yeah. Very, very common. I've been killed by a tomahawk already once today. So, but what they were really looking for and started drawing some connections in between were a thing that we'll touch on and and really expose later in the show, toxic stress and long-term health comorbidities. Toxic stress. Now, that's the thrash metal band from Brazil, right? No, different toxic stress. Oh, no, that's toxic holocaust. Never mind. Yeah. But we've brought Leah in because she is uh, an expert and a cosmonaut. And uh, a, a top chef, and uh, I think she's completely bionic from the waist down. <laughs> I'm not really sure who's telling you my secrets, but if you could maybe keep that under wraps a little bit, I'll I appreciate it. I'll cut that out in post. So okay. we've worked with Leah, and Leah has a, a pretty extensive background in mental health and behavioral, uh, and especially some just with children. Mm-hmm. And we thought that it would be a great opportunity to bring her in and get some perspective on just what it's like to to work with that population and some of the things that we've all seen and certainly with her experience um, she's seen for years now and kind of exposed this entire ACEs thing, this adverse childhood experiences for a lot of you out there that may have never even heard of this topic. Oh, you've heard of it. (laughs) For me, this is something that I I have a particular heart for just because I have worked with all populations from the young kids all the way up to adults and um, in, in the actual succession too, I started with like small kiddos in the elementary school system and then in a like low impoverished area and then moved up to adolescence and then now I'm with adults. So I've actually got to go through and um, kind of see the way that these play out across like the timeline essentially. So this is something that I have a particular heart for and passion for. So I'm excited to be here with you guys. When someone first explained the entire ACEs concept to you, I mean, I'm sure you were like me. You're like, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> like, how, how did we not put this together before 1998, you know? We were all watching the Cardinals. <laughs> the 
still. <laughs> we were but, busy. Yeah, you know, you yeah. look at these studies and I mean, it's just landmark. And to me, it's probably one of the most significant studies done in the 20th century as far as behavioral health and long-term outcomes and trying to connect the dots in between things that we think happen and you can imagine um, would have some play in, in the development of someone's life from a very young age through their adulthood to really beginning to pinpoint like, hey, this is happening, I think, to, hey, this is happening definitely, and hey, now I'm beginning to understand why. Right. Because uh, this this particular study turns out just by looking at our uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, this thing has been able to accurately predict heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, autoimmune disease, depression, violence, being the victim of violence, suicide, winning the World Series every year since 1998, yep. <laughs> all of the above. And if you want your efficacy, the this study has been accurately reproduced 71 times from its initial to through 2015. So you, you got your independent verification. Yeah. So when we're talking about the ACEs awareness and when we talk about, you know, adverse childhood experiences, there's a score that's related with that. And there's a questionnaire that, you know, is pretty universally accepted now and it's 10 questions long. And for a lot of you guys out there that are unaware of, of kind of what this looks like, we're going to go through the, the 10 questions that are asked, kind of the ACEs at home game and let you guys kind of answer these for yourself. Now, keep in mind, every one of these that you can answer in the affirmative, give yourself one point. And then we're going to go on to explain that later. Isaac, would you like to start us? Uh, yeah, we're going to start in Clark County, Nevada. Oh, no. See, I'm stuck on the election still. You're still stuck on the election? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, it's going to take a long time to come down. Uh, so the first one is, and like Jody said, if you answer yes, give yourself one point. <laughs> Did a parent swear at you, insult you, or humiliate you as a child? I can read it off of the thing. Let me let me get the official. I the, I wrote it in shorthand in my notes. Forget my notes. They're I was like, you're anyway. completely out of order here. Listen, if you could start over, please. Don't, don't worry about my notes. There's a couple of pictures of unicorns on here in a very sexually explicit position. It's, it's really weird. I was really questioning some psychosis. Whether yeah, there's really. Yeah, I was. Whether I was comprehending what was going on right now. Super responsive when I wrote that. Okay. All right. So you guys uh, just. So I'm on uh, the. I'm on the actual printout the printout did you feel that you did not have enough to eat had enough had clean clothes to wear or had no one to protect you or take care of you when you were a kid did you live with anyone who was depressed mentally ill or had ever attempted suicide did you lose a parent through divorce abandonment death or other reason did you live with anyone who had a problem with drinking, using drugs, including prescription drugs? Did your parents or adults in your home ever hit, punch, beat, or threaten to harm you or each other? Did you live any or, uh, did you live with anyone who went to jail or prison? Did a parent or adult in your home ever swear at you, insult you, or put you down? Did a parent or adult in your home ever hit beat, kick, or physically hurt you in any way. Did you feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were special? Did you experience unwanted sexual contact such as fondling, oral, anal, vaginal, intercourse, or penetration? And that makes 10. That's 10. So that's the the questionnaire that's pretty, pretty accepted. Most um, clinicians use this. So you guys that just went through that and gave yourself a point for each one of those answered in the affirmative. Now we're going to begin to talk about results and kind of how um, this plays out for everyone population-wise. So about 36% of the population reports zero. They have zero ACE score. I wouldn't have guessed it was that high. Yeah, it is relatively high, and I think that we probably come at that with a little bit of cynicism thinking, well, I scored, you know, and I, I'm feeling pretty middle of the road and fairly average and functional. Certainly. I come at everything with cynicism. <laughs> yeah. I come at breakfast with cynicism. So what percentage of the population reported one? What do you think? Jeez, I don't know. 26. See, that's pretty close. So I'm we're already, it. yeah, we're already over half, well over half with either zero or one. And those guys are, you know, kind of out of the woods on that. 
two or more was 16%. Three was 9.5%. And four, which is really where the study begins to pick up and we start to look at results um, in comorbidities that are running through the adulthood is 12.5% nationwide. So 12.5% of people nationwide in these studies report four or more ACEs. They could answer four of those questions with a yes. What do you think, Leo? You know, it doesn't surprise me. Having it being, you know, 12.5%, I honestly would have thought that these numbers would have been higher. Um, but the, yeah. I, the one thing that I had to take into account when I was doing, you know, my research of ACEs, um, because I knew about it already, but some of the things that, you know, it, it's been a while since we did this. And um, one of the things that I realized that the ACEs doesn't take into account some of the other aspects of trauma, other aspects of, you know, abuse, neglect that really we don't always kind of look at it. So some of the other adverse things that kids go through. So I think that's why probably this number, the 12.5 was so surprising to me. I would have thought it would have been higher. Yeah. But um, when I realized what it kind of takes into account, it made a little bit more sense to me. Yeah, you know, I think when we're looking at all those things stacked up together in one household, um, and mind you, the original study that was done by Kaiser was urban middle-class parents that were together, um, seemingly normal. And I've always heard the argument for ACEs of, well, these are just poor people making poor decisions. And of course, they're getting sicker. And of course, they're dying faster because they're participating in all this risky behavior. Right. The original study wasn't founded on that population. Mm-mm. And right. we, could, we could run this test. I mean, we're not even talking about that population right now. We're talking about average, what you would consider average Um, income, employed people that are functional, that have lives and jobs and do all the things. 12.5%. So I've got it broken down by uh, percentage points per yes. Yeah, I I broke it a different way. I like that that we got a different... uh, I I, I cut it across the x-axis where you did the y. (laughs) So uh, did a parent swear at you, hit you, blah, blah. Uh, 11% said yes. Uh, did a parent often push, grab, slap you, throw things, leave marks? Uh, that's 28% said yes. Wow. Did an adult touch or fondle you sexually or attempt intercourse in any capacity? That's 21%. Wow. Uh, did you often feel that no one loved you or that you weren't special? 15 Oof. Uh Did you feel like you didn't have enough food or clean clothes or your parents were too drunk or high to protect you? Is 10%. Uh, parents were separated or divorced, uh, 23%. Uh, was your mother pushed, grabbed, uh, slapped, hit, beaten, threatened, bitten? Wow. Yeah, I, for some reason, uh, reason I wrote bitten down there. Uh, that is 13%. And here's the, here's the one, here's the kicker. Uh, live with an alcoholic or a drug abuser, 27% said yes. Wow. A household member was mentally ill or attempted suicide, 17%. Household member go to prison, 6%. Incarceration's big. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it really is broken down into two main categories. You know, the the abuse and neglect part, which we see um, is very, we can all reason that those are very dangerous and very harmful things, certainly for someone who's just beginning to develop their own thoughts and patterns of behavior. But the incarceration, the witnessing of the, you know, uh, parental abuse, mommy hits daddy and you can't talk to daddy because daddy's mad and you can't talk to mommy because mommy's embarrassed and ashamed of, of what's going on. She can't leave the relationship for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's a codependency issue. And these kids never get to process. They, they don't get to process any of it. You know, and if there's no supportive person in that family, even let's say if grandpa dies, trying to reconcile and process that first death experience. But there's not someone in the home that can go, hey, here's how it goes, and this is going to be fine, and like death is part of life. And to help them walk those youngsters through that, they don't ever get to process. You know, and they just they sit in that and it's very dangerous yeah you learn to accept a whole different uh, kind of reality and survival when yeah but it's you know it's really two different classes of that aces experience where one is physical and i'm afraid and i'm constantly you know fighting or flighting and the other one is just i just never really got any direction i wasn't able to process or grow or develop because I never really had any model behavior to follow and what am i doing you know 
Mm. So it's difficult. That kind of goes into, you know, what I talked to you guys about before about when we're experiencing these different parts of um, trauma. So when we're experiencing these different things that we test for in the ACEs scales. Um, so we know that depending on basically depending on the age that you experience some adverse things and the duration to which you're experiencing these adverse childhood uh, events, um, quite frequently it has a it has a much different impact. So we have three major, major um, points in our lives where our brains are doing some crazy things, some crazy new developments, um, that being your early childhood, your school age years, and your adolescence, obviously. Yeah. So one of the things that we see is these kiddos that are in their early, early childhood, it can be one of the most devastating things because while that brain is very, you know, it, it, we call them squishy, they're malleable, they can still learn, they can still grow, they can still have resilience. Um, at the same time, some of those things become so devastating. Um, we see more of like an intrinsic issue, sadness, withdrawal, depression. Um, we see a lot more of self-blame. So when mommy and daddy are fighting, it's my fault. Right. You know, I'm, I'm pulling out of this because, um, you know, something I did is wrong. I am not good enough. I am doing wrong. Whereas when we see these things start kind of occurring later in life. So if you maybe you weren't experiencing some of these things that are on the A scale early, but instead you're seeing them as like a teenager and adolescent, for example, you're gonna see more of like a behavioral response. So I'm, I'm acting out, I'm having more difficulty in my social settings, I'm having more difficulty with authority and direction, essentially. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, when we're looking at <clears throat> early, early exposure, and we're talking about that fight or flight response that gets wired in, and when it's that neglect or that abuse, and you are frightened every day, you are just fear is your emotion mm -hmm. and you're going to react to that in one way or the other you're going to fight that fear or you're going to run from that fear and we see that play out in the five to seven to nine year old children that are bullying the kids in the playground mm -hmm. <clears throat> and someone walks up to them and maybe examines them very closely and this other kid's thinking i really like your hat but that kid's not thinking that. Mm -mm. He feels like he's being overexamined, and you're spending too long looking at him, and he perceives it as a threat. Right. And he becomes actually, actually very actively hostile. And if he's not saying something, he may be doing something. But if we look across the playground, we also see that kid that's playing by himself that's very withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And it's the same experience at home, but is not a fighter. He's a flighter, and he, he secludes. He doesn't interact very well. He's withdrawn right. uh, and experiencing the same thing. They're just having a different neurochemical reaction. Is his hat also nice? He may he may very well have a nice hat, but no one's going to tell him. And if and if they do, he's just going to walk away. Yeah, yeah, they probably wouldn't have even gotten over there. Like you're describing, like the onset of uh, uh, inhibited reactive attachment disorder. Yeah, this is what you get when you uh, severely abuse and traumatize and neglect a child. Yeah, they just they build this you know shell and they just completely pull themselves in and it's easier for them to not interact than to take the risk of interacting and becoming hurt because everyone i've ever known that has established my uh my my social interactions uh has hurt me yeah so, uh, you're 100 yeah. right and it starts that starts early on so when it's the early on trauma those experiences that's when we see the more withdrawn the more um you know everybody's hurt me i'm afraid, I'm shy, I'm pulling away from social experiences, things like that. But one of the things that we also know about some of these is when you're older and you expect the adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. So you know mommy and daddy are drunk, you know that this interaction is gonna occur. The one thing that we see is it doesn't have near the lasting impact really? as it does on those little kids. Yeah. yeah. That so, makes sense. Yeah, surprise trauma, for example, things we're not ready for, things that are out of the norm, things that shouldn't be expected. Um, have more of that lasting impact, especially on that brain development. And, you know, we do see those individuals who have these high A scores, typically they have less gray matter in their brains. Mm -hmm. They Three different areas of their brains are more severely impacted. And, you know, varying ages kind of have an impact on where the brain actually has that effect. And Do you know off the top of your head what three areas of the brain? I do. So it's going to be the amygdala the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex yes 
Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> I think what's really interesting about prefrontal cort uh, cortex development is that a lot of that stuff is not happening for these kids because they're so, they're so amygdala involved in these other right. responses and these other emotional sets that they're having based upon their atmosphere that it's really inhibiting their ability to develop their executive function. So mm -hmm. some of the cause-effect stuff, some of the long-term planning, um, so we begin to see ADHD in these kids, mm -hmm. uh, impulsivity, mm -hmm. um, difficulty with authority. Right. So it plays out, and, and certainly, you know, we see these kids with behavioral issues, and I think we shouldn't be asking what's wrong with you. We should probably be asking what happened to you. What happened? Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah. it's it's much more topical and much more yeah. relevant. Because hurt people hurt people. <laughs> Dude, I love that's perfect. I say that all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's exactly right on, and, and people don't even get it. And you're just like, no, think about that. Yeah, hurt Very people, true. hurt people, and then they do think about it and they cry. Yeah, dude, it's it's a, or it's hurt a, me. That's a heavy statement. Yeah. So, in terms of uh, predictability uh, with um, physical ailment outcomes from this, once we started to look at. Uh, all these people taking this uh, 10 point ACEs test, uh, the bracket that uh, the researchers honed in on was those that scored a four or higher. So if you scored a four or higher, your likelihood to contract hepatitis goes up by 240%. Wow. Uh, your likelihood to contract a, uh, a lung disease goes up by 390%. Yeah. Uh, likelihood to be diagnosed with depression up by 460% if you scored a four or higher. The likelihood that you will at some point in your adult life be prescribed antidepressant is up 1,002%. And if you scored a four or higher on your ACEs test, the likelihood that you will attempt suicide goes up by 1,225%. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I mean, any in any statistical environment, ten's huge. Twelve's monstrous. Yeah, twelve and times more likely. Twelve times more likely. So, and and that's a real number, and that's been reproduced over and over and over and over again. And when you see people that are committing suicide, and you get to the root cause of you know what their catalyst event was, what got you here, what brought you here, we can see tinges of the story that reflect back. To early childhood stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as a pattern. You don't see somebody that's uh, pretty balanced and established and coming into their 25s or 30s without a huge catalyst event that's right. not reactive to another individual like out of anger, like a divorce or caught a spouse cheating or something. And then there's this reactive suicidal attempt, which may be or may not be serious, more of an intention getter. But when we see completers or when we see pattern suicide attempts, now we have a new ideation and we get into the hospital, almost always reflects back to this data. Mm -hmm. Almost always. Absolutely. Some other pieces of the percentage likelihoods that I didn't get my hands on, but another few of these things that it, that it uh, predicts, uh, they were looking at if you score to hire your likelihood to contract COPD, be a smoker, have impaired work performance, have teen sexual, teen sexual explicit behavior, your likelihood to be raped your likelihood to rape somebody, liver disease, uh, your likelihood to perpetuate domestic violence, your likelihood to be the victim of domestic violence, your likelihood to be an alcoholic. All of these things, this uh, over the last, I don't know, 25, 27 years has been able to statistically predict goes up because of your adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And, you know, even more accurately, I think the and they've shown this, and you can do the overlays of the maps, maps for socioeconomic disparity. And what we see is in the more educated, higher-income uh, portions of, of cities and uh, urban areas, while there is significant ACE scores, it doesn't even light the map up compared to the other areas, the inner cities, lower income. And we can flip over map after map and go, okay, so this is a very um, lower income group here in this part of the city. And we flip the next page over. Oh, and also it looks like their education level is lower. 
And you flip the next tab over. Oh, well, it looks like apparently they're dying more often at a younger age. And you flip the next thing over, and all, it's all the same area. They're sicker. They're poorer. They're having a more difficult time in society. They're incarcerated at higher rates. And it reflects, again, back to all the same data. Where'd you get all these maps printed? <laughs> you have a lot of transparency. Yeah, there's a lot of transparency. I'm map flipping like the, those old Britannica encyclopedias, like, oh, the organs, oh, the nerves. But it's like the Oxford <laughs> English Dictionary where it comes with the little magnifying glass because it's four pages per page. Yeah, it's really small. It's yeah. really nice. It's like the microfish. It's <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody know what even microfish are anymore? No. Uh, yep. Yeah, okay. They're little fish. They're microfish. Yeah, they're microfish. Yeah. So another topic I thought was really interesting in the in the in overall um, look at when we're starting to talk about aces is again how that brain, how your brain is affected by what we call toxic stress. And when we talk about toxic stress, it's it's at the very end of a repeated response, and we're talking about hormones and glucocorticoids like cortisol being bathed and I think we touched on it a couple of weeks ago uh, Isaac when we made the statement from Nadine Burke Harris about the fight or flight response being super valuable and um, a survival technique we are oftentimes talking about glucocorticoids you're going to have to narrow it down yeah so we're talking about um, having that fight or flight response being very valid and valuable when you're in the woods and there's a bear Mm-hmm. It comes into play and it really is helping you. It changes the way your blood is circulating and increases your pulse response. You start breathing heavier. You start doing all of these things uh, because you're either getting ready to run or fight. Mm-hmm. But what's not great is when the bear comes home every day at 530. Been there. Yeah. So when you begin to have that response and this repeated um, excretion of these hormones and adrenaline response just all the time you're just saturating your brain in uh chemicals that are designed to just get you out of the clutches of a bear but now you're going to school and you're still producing them all day and you're expected to go hold down a job or work nine to five when you're 16 or something yeah uh and you're still just pumping out all these hormones like imagine what that does to your body it does to your baseline it's yeah you know endocrinology well, just imagine a three- or four-year-old running around in a filthy diaper that hasn't been changed in four or five days, looking for things to eat off the floor, watching mommy get beat up, and daddy use heroin. You have no way to relate any of those things that are happening around you, but you know it's bad. It doesn't feel good. And That's what you know. It, you, you see pain and anger and sorrow and sadness and uh, constantly, and this is... When you're developing, you don't know what things are. You have no idea of what what a normal emotional set is and, and how to relate. You're, you're supposed is, to be getting guidance. You're supposed to be being taught these things. This is just the way life is, is what right. you're being taught. Yeah, and you're, that's just your baseline at this point. Mm-hmm. So when you see those kids that are doing that, that are going through these things, and they're constantly having these hormonal responses certainly when that abuse becomes to them uh, are directed towards them you do have that fight or flight uh, center that amygdala that's super hyperactive in the prefrontal cortex area which should really be developing is is not getting done it's it's not happening at the appropriate levels and when we look at even single neuron scans of children that are being exposed to that what you see is these very hardened connections and we're not looking for that in a three-year-old we're looking for these really loose almost bowl of spaghetti looking neurons that have a lot of possibility they're still developing as they're learning things and touching new things and smelling new things and you know going to the park and seeing the dog for the first time and all these experiences that they would normally go through they're not having that they are fearing really for their lives and they don't really even understand the concept of life yet so it's tragic and when we begin to see that you know again as it plays out that prefrontal cortex area that's not being developed is is where you begin to see the impulsivity later um, unable to control behaviors um, addiction addictive behaviors uh, sexually acting out trouble self-regulating because nothing in their entire world is regulated yeah absolutely that's right so you have these inappropriate emotional responses, whether that's uh, super aggression or um, 
borderline personality. There it is. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So, but they, they just, they lack their coping. So what they learn to do is manipulate the, their environment and the people around them to get the things that they want without ever really being accountable for anything. I was going to say, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And one of the things that I talk about with my patients all the time is, you know, chaos attracts chaos. I mean, yeah. if, if only, if that's all you've ever known is chaos and manipulation and bad then that's how you live, you know, and not necessarily with the intent of malice or manipulation or, but that's your normal. Yeah. And so when we see these patients, so I, I was waiting on the borderline personality because that's something that absolutely, you know, goes right along with this and something that we kind of gloss over quite a bit. And so us in the, in the mental health field, you hear us talk about borderline beach quite frequently. And, mm. you know, we, is god awful as it is we have such a hard time with our borderline patients you know they're the ones that drain yeah. us the most and i think that the most of us kind of ah, they're borderline oh, ah, they're it. borderline another fucking borderline another borderline borderline beach and the tide is high <laughs> well you know the problem with borderlines is it's not really a treatable condition not, it's not, not. medication wise it's it's more of a cbt thing and mm -hmm. you really just need that's to get long term yeah it's long term you right know, and they have to be in an environment that's consistent with people that, you know, are willing to spend the time and make real connections with these patients. One, two, three, not it. And, and, well, the system's not built for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's just we, not. I can tell you that we in therapy even, I mean, we have the hardest time. Borderline is one of those right up there with PTSD. And it's so, so difficult to treat because there's not really a medication that's like, you know, it's not like bipolar. It's not like ADHD. It's not like these other ones that they have this tailored med that's, all right, let's just get you right where you need to be. Here's it, your prezosin. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just not like that. It's so complex. And especially because so much of it deals with exactly what we're talking about in these adverse childhood experiences and trauma. You know, if you only learned to communicate by cussing at somebody and by, you know, fighting about things, well, then that's how you're going to communicate when you get older. Yeah. If your only means of getting food or getting, you know, what you need out of life is by manipulating and by, you know, fighting, that's what you're going to do in adulthood. I'm just going to hit you till you agree with me. That's pretty, pretty much it. Now, we know that, you know, borderline personality doesn't necessarily just come out of trauma. There has to be like the genetic component as well. As Isaac likes to say, you know, nature versus nurture is bullshit. It really is. So, <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that we see with borderline is most individuals you can look back and there's a heavy, heavy proportion. It's somewhere in like the 40 some odd percent range has these high ACE scores. Oh, wow. It's yeah, yeah I'd have to I'd have to look it back up like look it back up. But it's I mean, it's a pretty high percentage and a big part of it comes down to that, you know, the fact that they are emotionally dysregulated and don't really have control over their impulses, their, you know, risk-taking behaviors. Um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it goes back to especially those, um, like those teen years, for sure, that acting out, the, the impulsivity, the risk-taking, and what was felt in those teen years. Right. Well, here's more bad news. You ready? Uh-oh. Bring it on. Unfortunately, the new emergent studies are showing that parents who had high ACE scores because of a troubled childhood or whatever their numbers were, wherever their score is, are now, it's becoming a genetic component that's becoming passed. Like it's, an epigenetic phenomenon? Literally. Right. So, so now you have an ACE score of five or six, let's say, for instance, Isaac. It's nine. But you've learned, you, you've, you've gotten some good therapy, you've, you know, you're on your way, you've adjusted, you've reconciled your past. You've, Debatable. You've formed good relationships, <laughs> and now you've had children, you're raising those children. Just a, It's just a model parenthood. I'll take it. Your children still have a higher chance of developing these comorbid conditions. Right. Simply because of the genetic structure that you've passed to them. I mean, we could we could sit outside and have a peanut butter beer and talk about epigenetic phenomena all day long. The methylization of histone tails and, <laughs> and oh yeah, no, there's uh, y you can change your DNA after you've been born. It, yeah, it's absolutely a, you know, it's mm -hmm. a living document and it's mm -hmm. it's being have you seen the funny meme on Facebook where it says DNA and RNA and RNA is like looking over and copying off the, the DNA guy that was mm -hmm. taking the test? <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so somewhere in between that transcription and between what we started with was a good genetic set and very healthy um, structure, 
when we're influenced by this toxic stress and these experiences that we, we go through, even if we reconcile them later on in life, they were still altered. We're still passing some of that. I, what we came with is not what we left with in most instances, right. better or worse. Yeah. So I, it's just fascinating. Yeah, that's why early intervention on some of these things are so, so important. Being able to kind of intervene early, getting, you know, getting kiddos into something early to kind of fight some of these adverse childhood experiences. Because it is possible that, you know, you're living all of this god awful shit at home, but you have an environment around you that makes a difference to where we don't see this being your future. Yeah, well, you know, the reason that I was so passionate about ACEs when I first discovered all of this research is that. I think it's an education thing. And really for me, if I tell a thousand people about it and one person goes home and does one thing different with their children that maybe makes a difference, maybe, right. I'm winning. Yeah, they'll grow yeah. up to be on the Cardinals. Well, you know, <laughs> even if they can't be on the Cardinals, maybe just, I, it just you can't even point to it in the research. You can't even go, oh, look, that, that worked. Uh, yeah, it's less because than it's, a half of a half of a half of a percent. Yeah, we but, only know the big stuff and the bad stuff and, you know, as far as... But you broke one cycle. Yeah, you break a cycle at least maybe even for that one child. Because, I mean, how many of us knew? How many of us had any idea that me screaming at my child or me having a, a difficult, turbulent relationship in my 20s with my, my child's original father before we got divorced... Would you have a lot of stories with your child's father? <laughs> no, I'm just making a for instance, Leah. Okay. What I'm saying would I feel like we should drill down on this? I, I really want to know. We're not drilling, <laughs> but wouldn't it be, wouldn't it behoove you, or would it change your mind if you thought that you could give your kid cancer by some of the things that you're experiencing and doing and going through and teaching? As is, I mean, as passively as as you may be, and you certainly we don't mean to hurt our children, but. When those things are happening, if I told you for sure, and you went into the relationship knowing that, hey, if you do these things, you could have a very, very negative impact on your child. Yeah, your kid could die on a ventilator when he's 51. Literally. So would it change behaviors? I, I mean, I, I'm on the side. I think people are good. I really do. So it, in a situation where I think people are able to make choices, I generally think they make good choices. So if they have the information and the education is the big thing that gets it out there and they're able to delineate that, hey, this thing I'm doing or this relationship I am currently in is not healthy, maybe I shouldn't have children. And if I do have children, maybe we need to go to therapy and work this out Yeah. because I don't want this to happen. Dude, you're winning. But it's just an education thing, you know? Yeah, because the only thing you can do when you're stuck in a, in a positive feedback loop of traumatic events is just break the cycle. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. But, I mean, the numbers are indisputable, and they're staggering, and it's dangerous. And, I mean, when we really even begin to just get through the very first level of ACEs and understand what these guys are saying and what it means uh, down the road and what it could potentially mean in 100 years or 1,000 years or tomorrow, it's just, it's huge. We're not going to make it 1,000 years. Yeah, we, some of us might. I well, really don't want to. You will. Or is this more talk about the collapsing star theory or the neutrons colliding? Or oh yeah, the degenerate era of the uh, the, the universe when the last stars. Died. Yes. Spoiler alert for you guys that don't know Isaac. He has some weird ass physics degree. Listen, if you want to talk about Hawking radiation, See, we can do that. I, I think the problem is no one wants to talk about Hawking radiation. I really don't. Fuck you guys. <laughs> You already lost me at the star fruit earlier today. So star, okay, star fruit is not galactic. It's it's just a fruit. You can buy it at Albertsons. You're just a fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so hurtful today. She's so hurtful. You know what? Hurt people hurt people. That's oh, right. gotcha. Adverse childhood experiences, so y'all. You're saying I can't blame Leah for calling me a fruit. You can blame stars. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's where really where they blame all your child's father. I, yeah. <laughs> see. <laughs> See, you just dropped one wrong noun on the show. You, st- you know, <laughs> it wasn't our fault. Don't blame the victim. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Words are hard, though. It's you, fine. You gotta, you gotta take ownership of that. So here's uh, another interesting piece of information. Did you guys figure out what the life expectancy change is between average Joe walking around with a zero or one score and someone who's been affected that has ACEs four plus? Twenty is it twenty years? It's twenty years. That was twenty one. Twenty years. Well, one. Who cares about one? I mean, you could get hit by a bus or you know, 
whatever happens in one year, but 20 years is significant. I was going to guess around 11 billion, but... You know, 11 billion. You got me thinking about deep time and neutrons yeah. and degenerate matter. Go ahead and say flat circle one more time. Time's flat circle. There you go. <laughs> Every week. Every week. So the difference between the average citizen living in uh, maybe some of these areas where the ACEs are prevalent and the scores are high... And I, I'm, I'm not sure, but last time I looked, I think the average female life expectancy in the United States was 78. Males were 74 and a half, 75. That sounds terrible. Well, it does. And, you know. I'm tired already. I'm 33. And I'm not going to sit here and say, well, now you're only going to live to 55 or 58 because of this relevant new data that's coming out. No, that's because <laughs> my bad hip. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th this research is now out and we're now aware of it, but it's been in play forever. So it's always had uh, a place in the life expectancies. Now, we see certainly some people that are at tragic ends, and certainly in the hospital we've seen people that were like, holy shit, that guy's only 55? He looks, no. He's 90. Oh, Jesus, God, he looks like Keith Richards. <laughs> Keith Richards is only like 42, though. Right. Yeah, is he's, he? Yeah, he's just hard, man. Hey, have you ever had a day where you woke up feeling the way that Keith Richards looks? Yes. Yeah, that's called the flu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's only the flu because that guy looks like he has Ebola. Jesus God, how did he survive this long? I don't. Know. I hear he's actually a really nice guy, though. I'm sure he's a really nice guy, but how did he outlive Dio? Oh, I don't know. First of all, yeah, he's got to be older than Ozzy Osbourne. Dude, I heard that when Dio was in his last few days, he's in the hospital. It was like a who's who of rock and roll just coming through the hospital. Like people were lined up outside in limos waiting to come in. The nurses picking up extra shifts so they could meet right. Zach Wilde. Right. And, and, and you know, Tony Belladonna. And <laughs> Is Scotty that Richie and... Blackmore? Would you sign my... Oh my God. It's Rex <laughs> Brown from Pantera. There you go. I like it. I think everybody was there. Phil probably didn't make it. <laughs> he might've made this one. It's Jeff Hanneman. Hanneman. Or did... You know, Jeff might have actually died before Dio died. I don't remember. How'd we get off on Dio? What happened? I don't know. Listen, I'm always like two degrees of separation from Dio. From anyway. Ronnie James Seal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At all times. It doesn't take much for me to think about Jeff Hanneman and Dio. So a lot of this research, too, and I don't know if you guys are well aware, but Nadine Burke-Harris, um, she's actually the current Surgeon General for California started a small clinic in San Francisco and someone brought her this research and she started going over all of it and when she was trying to figure out why the children in her particular area where she opened this clinic were just sicker that just were having these chronic conditions that shouldn't be going on she wrote a book called The Deepest Well in that book there's uh, an explanation of a young man that comes in with very severe asthma and early on said I think he was 7 or 8 years old and uh it was not really consistent. Asthma doesn't really have to be. There's, there could be so many different things that are happening. You're trying to isolate, you know, environmental factors. This kid just got some weird physiological trait. But it ends up, once uh, they really began to interview him and follow him in the study, that uh, mother was living in an apartment in a low-income area and had a boyfriend that was staying at the home. And while mom was at work, the, the boyfriend was abusing the young man. So uh, CPS got involved and they ended up disrupting that relationship. And, um, I guess I don't know if the guy went to jail or whatever happened, but there was a separation from the family there. That young man never had another exacerbation of his asthma. He was having a complete response, an inflammatory response physically that was life-threatening in some instances for him. Mm -hmm over an emotional event that was happening. It was physical, but um, I just think that's a great illustration of how very dangerous it could be. I mean, you're talking about someone almost dying from something unrelated Yeah. to environmental conditions. It was all just chemistry, just things that were happening to him and things that, as his brain was responding to them. It's just, it's breathtaking. Yeah, the, the link between thought and experience and, uh, and phys physical symptoms is, uh, I like, I don't even think it's something that we need to prove to you anymore. No. It's just a fact. It's, it's staggering. Can you imagine the, the resilience it takes to overcome stress-induced asthma? You know, it's, 
here we are. We're well. We have a rover on the moon. We're looking at the bottom of the ocean. We're doing all these complex surgeries, and we have the internet, and we're just we have all these cool things that we're doing. But we're still so in the dark. I mean, we're just muddling around with some of this stuff, and yeah. it's like stuff that it's just it seems very basic when you begin to understand. You're like, yeah. I mean, if all of these things are true, then probably if I interact with this other thing, then this could happen. And when you look at you know, abuse, neglect, and sexual abuse, and all these things that happen, and you see these children, and you can pick them out almost, you know, which kids in this group of this first-rate class you think have trouble. So you could probably go through and probably pick at least one. You'd be like, yeah. mm, let's talk to him. Yeah, yeah, we actually have specific red flags for that when we work in the school system. So that's where I came from, and there are very specific things we look for, and we can always tell by watching kiddos in the yeah. classroom who's actually experiencing some of these things at home. Like what? What are you looking for? So some of the things we're looking for, so obviously the classic signs. I mean, you've got your poor hygiene. You know, a first and second grader shouldn't smell like they just crawled out of a dumpster. They just shouldn't. You know, we haven't even hit that point in our lives yet where we should have awful rancid BO. So starting, I mean, there's those classic signs, of malnourishment, all of that. But the other things we see you know, why is the second grader sleeping through all of their classes? Yeah. You know, why, why is the second grader, you know, incapable of, you know, approaching you without wetting on themselves? You know, we see all these little, I mean, they're little nuances, like somebody falling asleep in class, you wouldn't think of as some sort of red flag for trauma or some sort of indication or somebody having some sort of incontinence. Um, you know, you're like, oh, well, they just, they just peed their pants. Well, no, actually, you know, somebody at that age, in that age level, still wetting themselves in a classroom setting is actually a major red flag to yeah. indicate that there's something going on that's being kind of unseen. Here's an interesting statistic. So these ACE scores, four plus, if you go through certain groups of people, we find the instance of this being much higher than 12 and a half percent. Leah, if you were to go through grade school teachers and give them the ACEs test, what percentage of those do you think would come back four plus? Of the actual like teachers? Yeah. Well, you know, teachers, administrators, people that are involved in that field, but generally let's just say just teachers. Oof. Yeah, oof. no. Oof. Oof, indeed. Oof. oof. I, I second that oof. Indeed. Oof. I, I feel like it would be, I don't know. I feel like it'd be higher than 12, like the 12%. You think it's higher? I think so. Okay. Now, never mind. Go ahead. So how, how comfortable are you guys having higher than 12% being around your children? I, I'm fine. Okay. That's a yeah, good question, I'm right? Fine. Yeah. Here's, no, here's the number. It's about 30%. I'll take it. Right. Yeah. So why do we think that happens? Why do you guys think? For the same reason that any of us apply at our very first psychological hospital. Yeah. yeah we no. see it in healthcare too. We see it in nursing. We see it in text. We, we see it in social it. work. Yes. We see it in all of those fields where people can actually come in and mm-hmm. help others and provide care, whether it's direct or not. All of those averages are well above 12%. Mm-hmm. And it's no mistake. And it's it's not anything that's out of the ordinary. It's consistent. I can go to 10 different schools. I promise you I'm going to get all of those teachers together. They're all going to be in the 25 to 30%. I can go through hospital wards and take those nurses. And you take all of your, you, you send me the best nurse on the unit. You send me who takes care of the people the best. It's you, the biggest heart. It's you. <laughs> it's you. All of those people are going to be in that. 30% or higher. They're that's all going to have aces four plus because mm-hmm. we get it. Well, that's the thing. We get it. We, and there's almost a feeling of that's therapy for us. You know, we're getting still treatment. We're still working through those things mm-hmm. and it helps us to help others. You know, when we say hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, help people. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of helping and we mm-hmm. can see it and we can pick those kids out of the classroom really quickly. We can pick those patients out and go, Oh man. Uh, there's some background here. Yeah. It's, it's indisputable. I just need them to tell me what it is. Right. You know, but it's, it's overwhelming. And, you know, I've heard different arguments like, well, I don't want those people that have had all those experiences around my kids. You do. Kiss my ass. You do. Yeah, spoiler alert. You, those, are, those are the people you want around your kids. Those are probably the people that have found the most resiliency too and can, you know, do yep. the most with that resiliency. Yep. They're resolving. They're still... If they're not working through it, which I think people are always continually in process, they're mm-hmm. always working. Um, but I mean, do you want people that don't have an eye for it, that don't understand what it is and that to not have that empathetic reaction or even 
to be able to begin to approach these students with some sense of, hey, I, I know where you are. I identify. I've been there. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. But I love the statistic that says that all those people that are involved in helping others, those direct patient, direct student, all those relationships and all those people that are out in the front lines, like you guys that are listening. And I know that we had a lot of people that are going, wow, my score is shit. <laughs> You're right. You probably are right. And it's yeah. okay. Because yeah. there's there's a the right good place. side to ACES. Yeah. You know, there's a good side to high scores too. So yeah. if you can make it past 55. <laughs> yeah. yeah Man. That, that hip is given out. I, I, I Shut it. All right. <laughs> so I will say that was uh, we're talking about this. And one of the craziest things, I was talking to one of our other social workers that we work with at the hospital about ACES and, you know, what it was like doing this in school and learning about it. And um, so I went to a very affluent school, a lot of rich kids. I'm talking about, you know, we got 19 year olds driving around Porsches and stuff. And I remember being the only kid in my class with a high A score, which you would think in a social work class wouldn't be the case, but I was the, like the only one. And I remember a professor looking at me, telling me you're going to be the only one that's really successful in your field. Nice. And a big part of that was because, you know, I remember hearing these girls talk about, oh my God, you had rats in your house growing up. You had roaches. You had roaches. That's disgusting. Well, you know, it is what it is, man. And that wasn't even the worst. So, (laughs) man, we became long, you know, good friends. Except the roaches, I'm still afraid of those. But Some of the rats and roaches are people. (laughs) You don't know it unless you know it. Yeah. That experience, as harrowing as it is, and some of the things that we look back that we wish maybe were different as we were growing up, end up being, you know, tools. They're enriching. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're not more powerful than they were not, you know. Yeah, I know a lot of people who they said they wouldn't change their A score. No, yeah, I they. I, I I can honestly say I would be a completely different person. It's it's oh, almost as though those of us that have a high A score and we found our way into the into the appropriate setting and the in the lines of work that the the three of us here at this table are are involved in. It's it's almost like it's at least for me. It's sometimes an attempt to reach backwards in time to fix something that couldn't be fixed for me. Like as you, if, if, if from that perspective, were you to achieve it, time would appear as though it were a flat surface. I was about God. to say it for you. So then the question, like that, I have to bring up that obviously, you know, I've done my research on, and I kind of know, I know my answer to is what creates that resiliency for us. Why are we the ones sitting here? Why, why were we able to get through, and why are we not in these statistics? Why are we not sitting here? Alcoholics. I mean, we may be, but that's not uh, well. The point. I mean, you know. You know, I don't know. That's uh, that's a good question, and I think everyone has an inert ability within themselves to either, at some point, make some decisions that are concrete and okay. stick to them, and not so okay. much. I mean, and it, and it honestly, I think it has a lot to do, and I hate. Isaac's about to give me shit, but it's environmental as well. It is. What you can be around, the people that you can surround yourself with that can support and and help to nurture that. I've almost got it together. I think I'm about to make some big decisions to push you over the edge. Now, I certainly know people that don't need any help. Mm -hmm. They just set a task and they destroy it every time. And it's almost like they're OCD until it's done. I don't know any of those people. Yeah, you're one of those people. (laughs) Yeah, you do. <laughs> but other people need more help and they need to be supported. But I think overall, once you begin to achieve things and you build some self-value, every task that you set forth that you begin to achieve becomes easier and easier. And those are the people that I think have a, a very measured response to success that end up being able to um, appreciate where they are because they know where they've been. Okay. Right. That's part of it. Yeah. So a lot of it, it's like I was saying earlier, is those um, those early interventions. So that's going to be something that's so, so key. So when you have all this turmoil at home, you have all this drama going on, these, all these horrible, toxic relationships with your own parents. So one of the one of the biggest things that makes a huge difference in, with some of these kids is having those lasting, healthy adult relationships. So if it's not your parents at home, having somebody else that's kicking your ass, making you do your homework, making you learn about you know staying in school about you know achieving is what ends up doing 
something different, having those community partners that bring food to your house because your parents can't get it for you. Right. Having those people that, you know, being involved in different things that keep you connected essentially and give you motivation. So obviously like there are those things that we have that we can use to, that are like protective factors essentially. How many times have we heard um, about someone telling you about a teacher that made the difference for them? Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, if it's fine that I share something from my personal stuff. Please. Like for me having the, you know, having the ACE score that I do, for me it, it was my school and it was my neighbors. You know, I've, I had neighbors, I started my first job when I was 10 years old Wow. And they, and when I say job, I mean, seven twenty-five an hour. I clocked out when I sat down, I worked on a ranch. I did everything from like neutering goats to laying fence posts, you know, <laughs> and they kicked my ass. Ranch they, that's right. I and like I it. never owned a pair of cowboy boots here in Texas. <laughs> so there's that. And then, you know, I had the teachers at school that did the same thing for me. You know, I had a teacher tell me when I made it into college and he visited me in college because um, he does this with all of his old students. And he told me, he said there were weekends when you would get back on Monday and I could tell you hadn't eaten. And so what he did was he kept food for me in his desk. Nice. So every day at lunch, I would go to his classroom to eat. The nurse would put together stuff for me. You know, when they found out I had a low grade in a class, they kicked my ass and wouldn't let me compete in speech and debate on the weekends. Wow. They said, oh, I don't care that it's passing. You're not making an A. You're not competing this weekend. You know, so having those meaningful relationships, having those people that were like very loving to me, but also kicking my Account- ass accountability and mm-hmm. keeping me accountable. I wouldn't have made it to where I was like without some of that. But some of that also comes in my own intrinsic motivation. And that's what we see in a lot of these kids, too, yeah. is a lot of these kids that end up being so successful despite all of this shit that they've gone through. It's because they've been like, I will not go through this again. Yeah. I will not be here. Success becomes a pattern. Yeah. It does. And, and once you get it and once you're able to set realistic goals, and I know that you and I have done some therapy courses on SMART goals and mm-hmm. how, to, how to really measure what's realistic to achieve and, and reasonable and within your means to That's get accomplished. Point. And when you start knocking those things out, it almost becomes addictive. You just yeah. become super good at it, you know? Yeah. I'm one of the most competitive people you will ever meet. Same. I can't. I don't play games with people. I I'm can't be- do it. I'm better than you at it. God damn it. You want to go? <laughs> I will win. I will crush you. <laughs> Fisticuffs. Catch me outside. I, Isaac, what, what are you doing over there? Oh, I was uh, looking through the book, seeing which one I was going to pick. Ooh. Uh, come on. Give us give us one. Uh, I get 8% off of my prescriptions for my motherfucking dick skin. So are they prescriptions for his dick skin, or are he, is he getting the discount because he just has a phenomenal dick skin? I don't know. I'm going to have to look at what the benefits are on GoodRx. I need the context. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't remember the context. I, re- I really don't. I try to be nice all the time, but there's all these fucking Koreans. Oh. It's super specific of him. Really? I do remember that there were no Koreans on the unit. <laughs> None. I think he was just talking in general. He's gaslighting you, man. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I'm often gaslit by the patients. I'm pretty gullible. Uh, had a girl smoking a cigarette, and it was about 25 degrees outside, and she comes in and says, I'm freezing my fucking labies off. Oh, Ooh. God. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Yeah. I've, never, I've never heard a slang term for labia. Labies. I think that's just, you know, personalization. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Uh, the clock might be pregnant. My wife delivered one child twice. And here's something I can't get, uh, my, I cannot get behind. Fuck air conditioning. Yeah. No. 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 If, you, if you have that poor of an attitude, move to Alaska, sir. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not good with that. I need that air conditioning. Or <laughs> No, we're not going to. I won't even make it past 33. It's not going to I'm just going to die somewhere. Ace is greatly impaired by lack of climate control. I'm telling you. That should be the 11th parameter. <laughs> Were you ever in a home? With, without climate control. Without climate control. Or at least a swamp cooler. Yeah. But man, apple juice, apple juice. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's yeah. really recent. Yeah. yeah. It, well, okay, so it's technically not. That's from a few admissions ago. But a uh, patient that's insulted me more times than I can imagine. There, there have been some pretty good patients lately, and... This is uh, one in particular. I know you're. I know that you know who I'm talking about. That likes to. Uh, that's pretty sure that she's pregnant and that she's lactating. And she oh tries, God. She tries to display, mm-hmm. but she's not lactating. She's not display what? No. 
Her lactation. Yes. Oh, super. Yes. And she's trying very hard, and I'm like, dear, you're going to have to put that away. And you're in the day room. There are people present. Yeah. And she told me today it's because we're jealous. We're jealous. Yeah, we're I, jealous. I'm not even there, and I am je- I feel jealousy just hearing the story. Yeah. Her lactation. Yeah. Looks fun, but it's probably not. It looks easy. I bet I could do it. Yeah. You know, I, I did see a uh, postpartum psychosis case who squirted my other tech with breast milk. Oh, nice. Oh. Yeah, she didn't have to try very hard at all. No. It, <laughs> no, there wasn't a lot of trying. It was just aim and go. Ugh. Yeah. Got her in the face and in the neck. It's good times. Wow. I think that's a great way to end the show, Isaac, with the <laughs> lactating on the, the neck story. We should start every show that way, too. Well, maybe Lactating we on the neck? Have to get some PowerPoints on that. <laughs> so we're going to end the show the way that we always end the show. And we're appealing to you guys out there that may be coming close to making a very poor decision for yourselves that could be more permanent than you understand. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is out there. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. They will pick up on the very first call and listen to everything that you have to say. They're wonderful people. And they have very seasoned people that have heard probably everything imaginable, and they want to hear what you have to say. Isaac? Have some pentano. 